I read a story recently about someone who was walking along a beach in Thailand and they came across a bag which had been washed ashore and inside that bag there was a camera roll and so they took the pictures, they got the pictures developed and there was a man and a woman who appeared in this camera roll in the pictures over and over again. Now it was obvious from the photos that they were on holiday It was clearly the holiday of a lifetime and so it's not exactly hard to imagine the sorts of photos that you might have found in that camera film. Uh, Think of all the beaming smiles, think of all the, the lovely pictures at beaches and at restaurants and all of the rest. It's not hard to imagine this couple going home, telling everybody, their friends and their families about the incredible experience that they had on the other side of the world. The problem is, of course, that they never did go home. The last time that couple was seen was Boxing Day 2004. Someone saw them walking to the beach and as they walked towards that white sand, that turquoise sea, as as they made their plans for the rest of that day, they had no idea that a tsunami was about to crash ashore. It's a really tragic story. And yet that story illustrates something for us. It illustrates that we actually have no idea whenever there's a disaster just around the corner. You can get into your car and you have no idea that there's going to be another driver who's texting at the wheel. You can take a dander out into your back garden and you can have no idea that your blood pressure is through the roof. You know, we seldom think about this, and yet not a single one of us gets out of bed in the morning and has absolute confidence that we're going to get back in at the end of the day. The end of our lives can be a lot sooner than we think. And that's a point that Daniel chapter 5 is hammering home for us. We've already seen Nebuchadnezzar. We saw him especially in chapter 4. We have seen that God gave this man chance after chance after chance. And yet it's possible that we read that passage and then we abuse God's patience. It's possible that we read of how patient God was with that man and we say, well, that means I can live however I want now and I can ask for forgiveness later. And so to guard against that, God has given us Daniel chapter 5, an incredibly sobering passage. A passage that shows us just how dangerous it is to abuse God's patience. So we're going to come and look at this really dramatic passage. But before we get to the story itself, I want to give you a little bit of background to help us understand this passage. Now, as you can see from verse 1, the main character is a man called Belshazzar. And straight away, as we meet this man, we have a problem. For years and years and years, there were people who didn't want to accept what the Bible had to say. And they told us there's a mistake in this passage. They told us we know all of the names of all of the kings of Babylon and there's no such person as Belshazzar. They told us, you see, here is proof. You cannot believe, you cannot trust what the Bible says. Well, 
They don't say that now. You see, over the years, historians have studied Babylon. They have dug up more and more information. And as it happens, one of the kings of Babylon was a man called Nabonidus. Nabonidus was a very, very strange man. He actually ended up leaving Babylon. It's a long story. We'll not get into it. But he ended up leaving Babylon. He spent around about 10 years, hundreds of miles away from the city. He was still king. But he left his son in charge of the government. His son was a man called Belshazzar. If you were to think about it this way, if in those days they had postage stamps, the face on those stamps would be the face of Nabonidus. But Belshazzar was the man who was actually in the throne room. Belshazzar was the man who was actually functioning as king. And it's interesting because in verse 7 of this chapter, Belshazzar really, really wants someone to interpret the writing on the wall. But do you notice what he offers them? He doesn't offer them second place in the kingdom. He offers them third place. Because, of course, first place is Nabonidus. Second place is Belshazzar. Third place is the highest place he can give. Now, now that's a small thing. But I think it does go to show that we don't have to be scared of the questions that people ask about the Bible. God's word is truth and it can stand up to all of those questions. Now, one other thing I want to say, and you maybe saw this in the footnotes in your Bible as you read the passage. But whenever the writer uses the word son in this chapter, uh, the original word in Aramaic, it can be translated in a variety of different ways. It can mean descendant or it can also mean successor. And so Belshazzar, as the man who was on the throne, was in that sense the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, anyway, having seen a bit of the background, I want us to get into the drama of this passage because it is really, really dramatic. And I want us to think about this main character, Belshazzar. And we're going to see three things about this man. So the first thing we see, he had a brass neck. It's really striking, isn't it, how things change in the space of just a few verses. At the end of chapter 4, we have Nebuchadnezzar. He is a man transformed. He is humble. He is worshipping. He is bowing down before the king of kings. Now, okay, there are quite a few years between the end of chapter 4 and the start of chapter 5, but what do we see at the beginning of this chapter? We see Belshazzar, and he is showing breathtaking arrogance. The scene begins with a party. Verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Now, to give you an idea of what this party was like, Uh, You think that the Irish have a drinking problem? That seems to be nothing compared to Belshazzar. Notice that in these first four verses, we're told about the drinking five separate times. I mean, try and imagine the sights and the sounds and the smells of this party. Imagine the shouts and the howls and the bellowing laughs. Imagine the boastful stories and the filthy jokes. You know, it... uh, We're told in verse 2, it's very sad this, we're told Belshazzar's wives and concubines were also at this banquet. And you know, I can't help but feel sorry for these women. 
don't know if you felt the same way reading through the passage. But here they are, and they're surrounded by a thousand pig ignorant men. I mean, imagine that. A thousand drunken men. You can only imagine how many filthy, sleazy comments these poor women had to put up with over the course of the banquet. It was quite a party. Of course, the obvious question to ask is, well, why? Why is this party happening? What is the celebration? Well, we're not told directly in the passage but we can work it out. See, we know from history that the Medes and the Persians had gone to war with Babylon. We know that the Babylonians had suffered a number of crushing defeats. We know that the Persian army had come right to the city of Babylon itself. And we also know that Babylon was about the most strongly fortified city in the entire world. It had a whole series of really, really thick walls. It could withstand enemy assault. We also know that the river Euphrates ran through the city, so they had plenty of water. And we know that they had vast stockpiles of food. In fact, they're supposed to have had enough to withstand a siege that would go on for several years. And so, given everything that's going on, given the fact that the Medes and the Persians are on the march, you can't help but wonder, was this feast a bit of a show? You know, if it was today, you might ask, was this feast all for the cameras? Was it propaganda? The enemy is at the gate. But here's how much it bothers us. It doesn't bother us in the slightest. Here we are having a party. Look at how long we can hold out for. Look at how much food we have. We have so much food that we can splurge it all on this sumptuous feast. Like I say, breathtaking arrogance. But it gets far, far worse. Because in verse 2, Belshazzar has a bright idea. He says... Let's get those goblets that Nebuchadnezzar plundered from the temple in Jerusalem. And so they bring in those goblets. Uh, These objects, by the way, they are dedicated to the worship of the one true holy God. They are holy objects, but what do they do? They fill them with wine and they offer toasts to gods of gold, silver, iron, bronze, wood, and stone. It's a travesty, isn't it? And the obvious question to ask is why does Belshazzar have this sudden brainwave? Well, again, we're trying to read between the lines here, but as we see in verse 22, Belshazzar was well aware of what had happened in chapter 4, He knows what Nebuchadnezzar had publicly announced. He knows that Nebuchadnezzar had said that God Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and he gives them to anyone he wishes. And so you just wonder, does Belshazzar see what's going on? Does he know that the kingdom is slipping away? Does he know that this was prophesied back in chapter 2, the dream of the statue? And is Belshazzar simply trying with all of his might to put his head in the sand. And if he's going to put his head in the sand, 
Well, in one sense, what better way to do that than to stick up your middle finger at the god who claims to be in control? He's got a brass neck. And one of the questions this passage thrusts into our minds is this. Do you have a brass neck? Are you trying your hardest to put your head in the sand? Are you trying to keep up the illusion that you are in control of your own destiny? Are you refusing to accept that your future is in God's hands? Are you refusing to accept that every single thing you've ever accomplished in the past has been in God's hands? If that's you this evening, this passage is like a blazing siren telling you to wake up. Belshazzar had a brass neck. That's the first thing we see. The second thing we see about Belshazzar, he went weak at the knees. Now I want you to imagine that you're at this party. There is a din of noise. Uh, someone maybe a couple of tables away has told the runchiest, filthiest joke you've ever heard in your life. And everyone around you is in stitches. And uh, there's a couple of men just down the hall. They've had way too much to drink. And they're starting to get into each other's faces. Uh, it's riotous. There's so much noise. And then, suddenly, the jokes stop. The singing dies down. And all you can hear is the thumping of your own heart. And the scraping of plaster. And you look around. You look to see what is making this noise. And you see fingers. Not a person, not even a hand, just fingers. Fingers that are literally hovering in the air. Fingers that are scraping some sort of message onto the wall. And you think to yourself, well, I have been drinking all night. Maybe it's about time I threw in the towel. But then you look around, you look at everybody else and you realise everybody sees exactly the same thing. Everybody is gobbing with their mouths wide open. You realise it isn't the drink. This is really happening. And so you look to the top table. You look at Belshazzar and he has turned as white as a sheet. Verse 6. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. Now, by the way, that phrase, his legs gave way, it's very hard to translate that from the original language. Uh, one writer suggests, and he's very diplomatic about how he puts this, but he suggests that there may actually have been a wet patch suddenly appearing at Belshazzar's chair. He's in bits. One minute he's having a ball, the next minute he needs to change his trousers. So what's he going to do? Well, in verse 7, he does exactly the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar used to do. He summons the astrologers. Now, I've got two things to say about that. Uh, it sounds, first of all, like Daniel has sort of faded into the background a bit. He's not really in favour at this particular time. 
That's the first thing. Uh, but the second thing I think we can say is that Belshazzar probably doesn't actually want to know the truth. He wants to keep his head buried in the sand. He wants these astrologers to tell him something he wants to hear. He wants them to give him good news, not necessarily the truth. But of course the astrologers come in, they're absolutely baffled, and they can't work it out. So in verse 9, Belshazzar goes even more white. And at that point, we have a new character on the scene. It's the Queen. Now, most probably, this is the Queen Mother. She is probably an older woman. She probably remembers what Daniel has done in the past. And she describes Daniel like this. He has the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. God is about to thunder his word into Belshazzar's ears. And you know, I do wonder how many people watching this are acting just like Belshazzar. You know, forget about the drinking, forget about the partying, forget even about the flagrant blasphemy. But how many of you are sticking your heads in the sand? How many of you are trying to make sense of the world without having to resort to what God says in his word. I wonder how many of you are going to experience a horrifying wake-up call when God sounds the klaxon. How many of you are going to find that the easy answers, the diversions you've put in place, the things that have distracted you from the truth, they actually melt away at the first sign of a crisis. How many of you are going to find that a moment comes and you can't keep your head in the sand anymore? How many of you will find that your knees give way? Belshazzar had a brass neck. He had knees that gave way. Thirdly and finally, we see Belshazzar's life went belly up. So here comes Daniel. Belshazzar starts by offering him riches and influence if he just interprets the message. But Daniel is not in the least bit interested in that. All Daniel wants to do is be a faithful messenger of the one true God. And so he gets straight to it. And he explains the same lesson that we have seen over the last few weeks. He explains that God is on the throne. And then verse 22, Daniel is a bit like a prosecutor in a courtroom. He says to Belshazzar, You have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And then, very ominous words, You did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. And then Daniel gets down to the main business. What does this writing mean? It's interesting, isn't it? These people have been mocking this God and now they're desperate to hear what this God has to say. And the writing says this. It says, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Really rather cryptic, isn't it? The words are very similar to some more well-known words. There's Mina and their shekel, and mina and shekel were units of currency, a bit like euro and cents, for example, or pounds and pence. Uh, currency in those days was based on weight. And that, I think, gets to the heart of it. 
God is like an accountant. He's looking through the balance sheet. Or he's like a merchant at the market. And he's weighing the produce. And he says to Belshazzar, You've come short. Verse 26, Daniel explains in more detail. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Peres, Peres, by the way, is just the singular of Parson, which appeared on the wall. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. This man's worst sin is that he is not willing to acknowledge that God has the right to raise up kings and bring them down again. He isn't willing to acknowledge what we saw in Daniel chapter 2, that this statue is moving on from the head of gold to the chest of silver, just as God promised it would. Belshazzar is looking at the Persians outside the gate. God has already said that the Persians are going to take over and Belshazzar is saying, I can stay here on the throne for as long as I want. And God says, no, I am calling in your debts. You know, it reminds me of a a TV program I saw once. It's terribly trashy stuff to be perfectly honest but it's all about high court enforcement officers in England and let's say for example there is a landlord that landlord had a tenant the tenant trashed the house the tenant refused to pay rent well these enforcement officers would come round and the number of times that people would say I know my rights you have to give me 30 days notice I can stay here for as long as I want And these enforcement officers, they would pull out a piece of paper. That piece of paper was signed by a high court judge. And they would say to the tenant, you've got an R. Pack your bags. You're getting out today. Well, here we have a higher authority than a high court judge. A higher authority than the one who sits on the throne in Babylon. And God delivers a writ, not by post, not by bailiff, but by floating fingers carving a message onto a wall. And God says, time's up. Enough is enough. And this story is so, so tragic. See, Belshazzar has one last opportunity, not an opportunity to save his kingdom. It's too late for that. God has already spoken, but he does have an opportunity to save his own soul. He can do what Nebuchadnezzar did. He can bow down. He can humble himself before God. He can accept that God himself is the king of kings. But what does Belshazzar do? Verse 29. He gives Daniel a promotion. And he showers him with blessings. He's deliberately missing the point, isn't he? I reckon he's a bit like a husband. And the husband's wife has plucked up her courage. And she has confronted him. And she has challenged him about his selfishness. And his neglect. And his faithlessness. And this husband thinks to himself. Well, if I can just buy the biggest bunch of flowers I can find. We can forget all about this. And we can move on. It's tragic, isn't it? 
Verse 30. That very night Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Belshazzar's life went belly up. Well, what's the lesson here? Well, we've got a number of lessons we can learn. First of all, Christ is in control. Now, we've seen that all the way through this book. We've seen that this kingdom that lasts forever is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. These spectacular kingdoms of men, whether it's the Persian Empire or the Babylonian Empire, they rise up, but they disappear. But the kingdom of Christ endures. And we see in this chapter that when King Jesus says, Time's up. That means time's up. Second thing we see, you can't abuse Christ's patience. Now, we have all experienced the patience of Jesus Christ. He has not thrown us into the punishment and the torment that we deserve. But it may be this evening you haven't actually asked him for mercy. If that's you this evening, you need to know you are dangling on the edge of a precipice. God gave Nebuchadnezzar years from when he first had this dream. Nebuchadnezzar didn't listen. Eventually, God gave Nebuchadnezzar seven times to learn his lesson. And he did, and he bowed down. Belshazzar is similar to Nebuchadnezzar. He had years to learn about this king of kings. He wasted those years just like Nebuchadnezzar. But here's how he's different. When it came to the final warning, he didn't have seven times to learn his lesson. He had until the end of that night. God gave him hours. Not weeks, not months. Hours. To repent and be saved. And God is perfectly within his rights to act in whichever way he wants when it comes to you. Don't assume that you will have time to learn your lesson. You don't know that. Third thing we see, we need to be ready to meet King Jesus. Those tourists who went to the beach, they didn't know the tsunami was on its way. Belshazzar went to this banquet. He didn't know that the tsunami of God's judgment was about to crash against him. We don't know what next week has in store. We don't even know what tomorrow has in store. We do not know when the Lord Jesus Christ will call in those accounts. You need to be ready for his return. You need to be ready for your own death. You need to be ready to meet King Jesus. Isaiah chapter 55 verses 6 and 7 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to God and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. 
Are you ready to meet this judge?